everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And we're back for another week of true crime stories and nursing talk. And guess what? I have a an educator for the emergency department on. And not only that, not only is he a nurse who is an educator, so I know you guys are going to be super excited about that, but he also is a fellow podcaster. And I love having fellow podcasters on. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Tina. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. So just real briefly, tell everyone about your podcast. Well, thanks, thanks for that. I appreciate it. My podcast is called The Art of Emergency Nursing. And what I do is I interview uh, nurse thought leaders from all over the, the world. We've had guests on from uh, you know right next door to me to across the world. So we interview emergency nurses. And we hear the stories that, that changed and shaped their career. It's a blast. Sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're sad, but they're always interesting. I love it. And one of the things that a lot of the the nursing students tell me is that they love the back and forth, you know, chit chat about nursing. And they uh, sometimes I'll get messages from nursing students saying, I feel like I'm just kind of like listening in on you guys talking in the break room. And so I feel like they are going to love your podcast because that's kind of like getting to hear that behind the scenes stuff that's going on. Absolutely. I think that's what people really appreciate about the podcast is, you know, I always tell people it's just me and you here having a conversation and eventually people will get to hear it. Yes. And, and, and sometimes those conversations get really deep yeah. and really personal. And, and then we share them with, with a, a group of folks that, that have probably gone through similar situations. Yes, absolutely. I love it. You guys go listen to Kevin at the Art of Emergency Nursing for sure. I appreciate that. Yes. So we're, we've got a news story, obviously. This news story is very tragic and, and, and upsetting. And then we have a, a bad nurse, or excuse me, it's a bad doctor story this week, and then a good doctor story. So we've got a good show laid out for us. But first off, we'll talk about this news story that's just heartbreaking. I And, you, and you know, this is really interesting because a friend of mine sent me this story and she said, hey, maybe you could talk about this on your podcast, literally sent it to me today. And you and I have had this planned for several weeks. Yeah. So, and you are an emergency nurse. It's, I could not even imagine a better story. It's perfect. Yeah. I hate that it happened, but what do you think? So the, I'll just tell you guys the what this story is. It's a, a 25-year-old and they say teacher, she's a preschool teacher. She died after waiting. You know how headlines are. They're a little salacious, maybe twisted just a little bit. So what happened is this 25-year-old preschool teacher went into the emergency room because she was having shortness of breath and chest pain. And so they did see her, gave her an ECG, kind of did a, an initial triage, put her back out in the waiting room. She waited for about two and a half hours. And then she decided she was going to leave because she was told that it was going to be, or she put on social media that it was going to be like five or six hours before she saw a doctor. Well, about an hour after she left, she collapsed, was sent back to that hospital and ultimately died. Well, I mean, what do you think about this, Kevin? It's a super sad story, but boy, I got to tell you, like, you know, two different thought processes on this. It's, as, a, as a human, of course, it, it's tragic and it's super sad. As an ER nurse, uh, I, I kind of have mixed feelings. She she didn't wait real long in the in the, the waiting room. Um, she was she was brought into the emergency department. She was triaged. From what I'm from reading in the articles, it looks, sounds like they did an EKG and they did a, a chest X ray. I'm assuming they did a full triage 
on top of that and, and, and may have even drawn labs. That, that would have been the typical standard of care typically. But boy, you know, two hours after getting to the emergency department, she wasn't seen and she decided to leave. And, and you know, sometimes, sometimes we, we can't protect people from the choices they make. As, as terrible as that sounds, it's um, you know it's it's unfortunate that it happened. But a, a two-hour wait in a lot of urban emergency departments is not very long. I mean, we we have uh, I've had it at different emergency departments I've worked at where we've had a much longer wait time than that, and and it's unfortunate and it's sad. Um, but two hours isn't very long, and and you know I'm not sure. It's hard to tell what changed in that two hours from the time she was initially triaged till the time she left. And then, you know, a few hours later when she came back and she was, you know, much sicker and, and then ultimately uh, passed. Boy, it's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking. And, and I'm sure that, you know, everyone was wondering what, you know, what was missed if something was missed. And it's, uh, it's, it's a tragic story. I didn't know how to feel about it as well. I mean, I, I know that emergency departments across this country are just overrun with patients. They, they cannot possibly see everyone immediately. It's just, it doesn't work that way. And I know there are a lot of people that come in maybe for things that aren't quite necessarily emergencies. This woman obviously was having an emergency. I feel like chest pain and shortness of breath is definitely an emergency. And it's not like she wasn't seen. So I, I kind of, you know, you read the headlines and you're like, what? Like, how does this happen? <laughs> yeah. And you read down into it and you find, well, I mean, she was seen. She had a couple of tests done. Yes, she was having to wait. I think I read, and I read a couple different articles. I believe I read one of them. Maybe they saw some cardiomegaly. They knew there was something going on, but it wasn't something that they necessarily could do an intervention for immediately, I guess. Or they yeah. felt like maybe they couldn't. I don't know. If she had stayed in the in the emergency room, in the waiting room, I I don't know. If you think about so she was a 25-year-old woman, a very yeah. and and how often is and this is how often is is chest pain in a 25-year-old yeah. a true cardiac event? And the, and the answer to that's not very often. Yeah. But but certainly it has to be ruled out. Anytime anybody comes to the emergency department with chest pain and shortness of breath, the emergency department's going to take that seriously. Sure. Whether you're 82 or 25, you're, we're going we're gonna to take that seriously. And we're going to do an initial workup to try to figure out how soon you need to be seen from there. And she, you know, she would, as having been a longtime charge nurse in an emergency department, she wouldn't have probably, you know, she had an okay EKG and, and you know, what sounds like maybe an okay chest x-ray. And of course, this is all armchair quarterbacking and I have no you know, uh, no personal knowledge of the case, but she wouldn't necessarily be the first person I'd rush back to my last empty room. Um, with that said, you know, certainly one of the things that the article brings up is the article brings up the fact that, um, that she wasn't then followed up with in the emergency department, uh, waiting room. And I, I think that's something important that emergency departments have to do. Um, but, but two and a half hours, isn't a very long time. Yeah, and some people may listen to that and go, two and a half hours, that's crazy for someone having chest pain. It's But what you said is perfect because she was assessed. She had the, a couple of tests to just make sure it wasn't something emergent going on. She wasn't in, you know, a lethal arrhythmia or anything like that that would, would, would cause immediate intervention. So she, 
I, I don't know. It's hard to, it's kind of yeah, hard. It's, it's unfortunate. It's one of those, it's one of those things that you, you never want to happen. Yeah. You never want to happen. You never want to miss something like this. And and certainly, you know, things like cases like this probably happen in emergency. People leave emergency department waiting rooms every single day, every single day. Uh, I, I've had people come in, check in and they'd say, how long is this going to be? And they'd be like, hey, it's going to be, it's going to be a little while. There's a lot of folks here and, and there's a lot of folks who are pretty sick and they'll be like, Oh, well, I'll just come back tomorrow. And, and, you know, it, people do that all the time. Yeah. Now the hard part for the emergency department is the emergency department truly is the community safety net. So if primary care is not working, if yeah. you can't get in to see your regular doctor, you can't get in to see, you know, who knows if you, if you even have a primary care doctor, People come to the emergency department and use the emergency department like primary care every single day. And that's what, you know, that in, in the ER, the ER doesn't turn anybody away. They're going to they're gonna see you. They're going to rule out the bad stuff, try to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Regardless of the complaint, if you show up at the emergency department, they're not going to turn you away. They're no. not going to turn you away. They're going to they at least, no, they can't. They have, we have EMTALA laws that prevent that. We're going to work you up. We're going to determine whether or not you have a life-threatening emergency. And if you don't have a life-threatening emergency, then we're going to recommend that you follow up with your primary care doctor. And what I tell patients all the time is the ER is a terrible place to get your primary care. Yeah. So, but if you don't have insurance and you don't, you know, yeah, I, I mean, what else are you going to do, I guess? Yeah, but. you you go you go to the emergency department because all those things, you know, we we as emergency department say, oh, you don't have insurance, can't pay. We're still going to get you at least squared away and, and at least stabilized. That's it's what really, we're do. It's unfortunate for this woman. I I feel terrible for her, oh, and I terrible. can promise you the staff that ER feels terrible as well. Because they made a judgment call and it, you know, clearly, and, and who knows, even if they had, I don't know what else they would have done, or kept her in a room back there, try consult cardiology, I, you know, what's going to happen? It was, yeah. I think it was around five o'clock in the evening when this started. The thing is, once she went into, and like I said, they did find some cardiomegaly. There was an issue. There was a cardiac issue. Typically, when you have, when you find something abnormal like that, you have an abnormal EKG, you have an have abnormal vital signs, you have anything abnormal, you always ask yourself, are they symptomatic? Is there something going on that this is causing? Because that's when it does become something you need to address. It's absolutely so. I feel like she did have an abnormal chest x-ray that showed cardiomegaly and then she was having symptoms. She was symptomatic. She was having chest pain and shortness of breath. So I guess I don't really, it does bother me that they put her back out in the waiting room, you know? And and, and unfortunately, you know, a 25-year-old with chest pain and shortness of breath with a, yeah. with a clean EKG, yeah. a non-concerning EKG, not, yeah, again, I'm making guesses here, and a probably an incident, maybe an incidental finding, who knows? Uh, or, or maybe it was a, a very um, uh, pertinent finding in the X-ray. You know, still there's. If she wasn't symptomatic, if she wasn't symptomatic enough to the point where they had felt like they needed to intervene immediately. Yeah, it's hard to say, and it's hard to say what yeah. she, had she been in the emergency department when she had whatever change happened that brought her from coming in with a chest pain, shortness of breath to her ultimate demise. Uh, If that change would have happened when she was in the the emergency department, there there very well may have been a different outcome, but... but It may have, yeah. If she had been there, if she had stayed, 
even in the lobby, she yeah. very well could have survived. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. She may not have survived had she been literally in a room with a cardiologist standing right there. You don't know. We've, you know? I see, we, we've all seen it happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, certainly. It's a, it's a tragic story. It's, it's very tragic. And the thing to take away from here is, um, I want, for one thing, I just I always like to sh- kind of shed light on our different departments and how we all work so hard and not to blame people, but just when whenever things happen, try to learn from it because I know how hard my coworkers who work in the emergency department work. I know how hard they work. I know how much they care. They really do care. So it's if something like this happens, they're you don't have to beat them up. They're beating them, themselves up. They're, you know, don't worry about that. That's taken care of. They'll never Absolutely. forget this. Yeah, Absolutely. they'll never forget it. The the ER nurse who triaged this uh, this woman, I'm sure, has gone over the case a hundred times in her mind, saying saying, "Hey, what what could I have possibly have gleaned from this?" Yeah. And and maybe there was something. Maybe there wasn't. We'll never know. But. Uh, you know, one of the things that's always hard for the the hospital is, you know, the the press and the family get to tell their side of the story, and the hospital rarely gets to tell theirs. Yeah, um, they they just kind of say, "Hey, it's unfortunate this happened," but they're not they don't necessarily tell their story. Well, after her death, I guess there was a federal inspection. Of course, there's going to be they're going to come in. They're going to start looking closely at everything, looking at all the charting, looking at all the policies, looking just everything that's going to be under a microscope after after an event like this. And of course, they found where there were patients. You know, she wasn't the only one who didn't maybe receive the exact care according to JCO standards. You know, at was she receiving the best care though that emergency staff could possibly give? Probably, but it, it's maybe does it does it fall in line with the actual JCO standards that everything is charted that you took all their vital signs exactly you know however many hours apart or whatever? I it's and that's the thing they they start inspecting everything and they're not just looking at her now her situation they're going to look at all the patients that were in there what was going on. That night, absolutely, and and you know certainly they're going to look at they're going to look at that and and anytime there's a anytime there's a, an outcome like this, this yeah. is something that that you know regulators are going to get in and kind of take a look at and and then make a determination on whether this was you know is this a big system problem or is this just an unfortunate incident? Yeah, and it sounds like the, the the they were cleared from their you know that certainly didn't cause any kind of uh, CMS violation that that I, yeah. that I read. So it's unfortunate. Yes, absolutely. Well, I guess that kind of wraps it up for the new segment. You know, the new segment, sometimes it's something lighthearted and sometimes it's not. And this time it was really kind of a bummer, unfortunately. This time, this time not so much. Yeah. I'm lighthearted. Yeah. So. so our bad doctor story. This story, Holy I'm cow. telling you. Oh, my goodness. Holy cow. I cannot even. I, it's just the most. It's the craziest thing. I can't even wrap my mind around what in the world is going on. It's just like, it's one of those stories where you st- you read it and you think you know, you think you know the story. Okay, you read it and you're like, oh, okay, I know where this is going. Then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, wait, what? What did I just read? And you go back. <laughs> it's crazy. So Absolutely. This is the story of Dr. Vince Gilmer. He was a doctor, a family practice doctor in North Carolina, and he had his own practice there that he uh, started with his wife. Um, very beloved, res- well-respected 
in the town there in Fletcher, North Carolina, where he lived. Just kind of one of these people. I know you have to have doctors where you work that are like that, that you're just like, oh, I love that guy, you know, or I love that girl. I love that woman. They're just awesome. Absolutely. There's so many doctors that I've worked with that, you know, like their patients just all adore them. And it sounds like this was the kind of doctor that this guy was. I mean, nobody could say anything bad about this guy. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's that's not the only reason that it's a shocking story because there are just so many weird twists and turns, but it is definitely, you know, something that when you think about it and you think of like the most well-respected physician, when I think about the people that I work with and try to imagine something like this happening, I just cannot get my brain to even go there. It's not possible. I can't imagine what these people were thinking, you know? Like, like everybody in the audience, think of that doctor that you know that everybody adores, the mm-hmm. doctor that the nurses love, yes. the patients love. Other doctors love this person. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves this guy. My, my wife had a doctor that was like this. That like nobody could say anything bad about this person. They were just wonderful. They were like a saint. Yeah. And th- that was this guy. Yeah. And it's not like, it, it, he's not just a nice guy. He's not just, you know, kind of like fake nice being, you know, smiling at everyone. This guy is like the guy that will give his patients a hug. He would make house calls. He would give free checkups for people, for all the firefighters in the town. He he would accept payment like goods or or services if people couldn't afford to pay, you know, just that sort of thing. When does that happen? It doesn't anymore. I don't I mean it's this was this was just in the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah. Not that long ago. So around two thousand three, his loved ones started noticing a change in his character. One important thing to note, okay, he was in a motor vehicle accident, and I don't want to rub anyone the wrong way because it's not saying that all of this stuff is as a result of 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 the motor vehicle accident, but just as a as a as as a detail to be aware of, he was in a motor vehicle accident and did experience a serious head injury. He was hospitalized. He didn't know who he was, you know, at first, you know, when it, when it initially happened. And he was discharged, went back to pretty much his normal life, but was never quite the same. So it's, could it have contributed? I don't know. It's something to consider because I definitely know there are, you know, I think about a lot of NFL players who have had lots of concussions and then you know, unfortunate things have happened later on in their lives. So I, I think there's a connection possibly. Concussions are weird. I, yeah. You know, sometimes people will have a concussion and and that post-concussive syndromes that, that are out there, like they haven't really been well enough researched that, that sometimes they create huge personality changes, yeah. huge sequelae that, that we don't even think about as being post-concussive. I mean, they could be so many, a variety of things that, that are just kind of crazy. And it sounds like, it sounds like this kind of created a little bit of a, a lifestyle change for him. And, and it was a pretty significant accident to where he, you know, obviously he had a loss of consciousness, couldn't remember his wife immediately following the accident. He, he didn't even recognize yeah. his wife. How, how bad does your head injury have to be for that? Holy cow. It's scary. That's very scary. It really had to be scary. scary. Yeah. For his wife, uh, 
my, my son had a head injury. I feel like I've been talking about head injuries a lot lately because I keep bringing this up, but this happened to us and, and it was very scary when yeah. that, that happened. So all of this is, and, and I remember the neurologist saying to us, you know, I, I mean, yes, I'm a neurologist, but I will tell you that we don't know a whole lot about the brain. So much we don't know. Yeah. So after the accident, he divorced his wife and it was very abrupt. He moved out, started drinking on a regular basis. This was very abnormal behavior for him before he rarely would drink. Um, Friends and community members noticed he kind of had a shorter attention span, was very irritable, that sort of thing. Just really significant personality changes that were just so unexpected and hard to explain for people. So then on June 28th, Dr. Gilmer told his desk manager to close the clinic early. This was not planned. This was very unexpected. He left and drove to Broughton Hospital, which was a mental facility where his dad was staying. And he picked his dad up. His father's name was Dalton Gilmore. He was a resident there. He lived there at that hospital. He was he could barely walk. He was he he did have dementia. And he required a lot of assistance with what we call activities of daily living or, you know, just bathing and toileting and eating and everything. What what most nurses would consider a full care patient. Yes. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Total care. Yeah. Total care. Dr. Gilmer said that he were he was wanting to actually move him to a facility closer to where he lived. So when he took him out of this facility, he was not planning on taking him back. He was planning on taking him and checking him into a different facility. So Dr. Gilmer went to work then on that next Tuesday and basically said that he brought his father home with him, but that he just wandered off somewhere on Monday and he had no idea where he went and couldn't locate him. Didn't from from reports didn't seem all that concerned. It was kind of like, wow, gotta go find him, but can't find yeah. him now. Yes. Very, very strange. Dr. Gilmer just continued to work like normal that day. Okay. Then day after your father just wanders off, who you know has dementia, who's been living in a facility requiring total, help. Total care. Total care. Wandered off. And you're just going to go to work the next day. Okay, I get it. He took his coworkers out to lunch. And while he's out to lunch, he gets a call from detectives. They found his father's body in Virginia. While he is here at a restaurant with his coworkers, he sort of faints, like collapses at, when he hears the news laid down on the ground at, or on the floor at the restaurant. And they were just all in shock and could, you know, just like, wow, he is completely broken down over the news of his father because he just found out his father was dead. Everything you would expect to see getting that kind of news. Yeah, absolutely. The detective, okay, his name is Detective Martin. He went to meet with Dr. Gilmer at Dr. Gilmer's house and he noticed that he was very calm, showed no emotion. The doctor told him that when he brought his dad home from the hospital, he was so happy. He played in the yard with the dogs. Well, doctor or the, the detective knew that that wasn't true because 
he had interviewed staff at the previous facility that where he lived, and he knew that he wasn't able to walk. He couldn't take care of himself. There was no way he was running around playing with dogs in the front yard. I mean, much less wandering off by himself. Yeah. I mean, again, imagine your your total care patient suddenly wandering off and playing with a dog. And no, it, it, they were like, I don't, I don't know that I believe you, sir. No, and and so. Not only is his story about his about his father playing in the yard with dogs who couldn't walk, uh, but also the detective pointed out that it's kind of odd Dr. Gilmer wasn't asking more questions or showing concern about his father's death. And he said, I've been here, I've told you your father is dead, and you have not even asked me how he died. That's very strange. Most people would want to know the kind of the kind of questions you would expect someone's going to ask, like why, how, 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 where, how, when. Yes, what, what happened? Exactly. The detective said, "You know, normally, what I've in in my experience, when I have someone who I've just told that a very close family member is dead, and they don't ask me how they died, it's because they already know how." Yeah. Yeah. So, Doctor Gilmer pulls the doctor card and, you know, and this is so funny because I recently, I have a new assistant who is doing my show notes for me. And so she's cracking me up at these <laughs> when I'm reading my show notes because she's putting her own little spin on how she says things. Uh, but so I'm kind of laughing when I'm seeing this because she's putting her little words in there and they're so cute because she said, basically, he pulled the doctor card and was like, do you know who I am? And that's pretty much what he did. He said, do you know who I am? I am a very important person in the state. I can have your job. And, and again, that, that doesn't usually play real well with police officers, even if you are a doctor. <laughs> yes. I, and so you just go, okay, this guy has instant, to be- Instant defense, like instantly defensive as soon as yeah. you realize that he wasn't being believed. Why so defensive? And I mean, yeah. I can understand maybe being irritated that they are considering you a suspect if, you're, if you didn't do it. But to get so defensive at the person who is trying to figure out what happened to your father who's coming to tell you- mm, yeah, that didn't sit well with that yep. detective. Yep. They searched the house. They found a Walmart receipt with a random purchase of five bottles of peroxide. And Kira says that we all know that's the best stuff to get blood stains out of our white scrub jackets. <laughs> True story. True story. <laughs> so the receipt was dated around the same time that he brought his father home. So it made sense that he probably used it to, you know, maybe something. clean something up. Yeah. Five bottles. It's a lot of peroxide. Yes. Now, the police officers, the, the detectives, what they decided is they figure they have enough evidence to get an arrest warrant for first degree murder just based on the fact that the doctor lied about his dad playing with dogs in the yard when he clearly could not have done that. Uh, so he knows that they're on to him. So what does he do? He packs up a few camping supplies and including a tent and takes off on the run and goes and apparently there's like a wooded area. This is in Asheville, North Carolina area. Uh, so it's very mountainous, you know, lots of trees. And so he pitches a tent behind the Lowe's home improvement store in Asheville, North Carolina. He wants to rough it. He has to want to really rough it. He wants to rough it, maybe not too rough. That way, he, you know, if he needs something, he can run into Lowe's. Right. He has access to maybe a bathroom, that sort of thing. Bath bathroom's nice to have. Mm -hmm. Now, despite his excellent hiding spot, he they did catch him. And 
when they first approach him, he literally ran away into the forest behind the store and was hiding behind trees. The police sent a dog after him, and one officer said that he saw Dr. Gilmer run at the dog, charge the dog, and another police officer. And when he did that, Dr. Gilmer had no expression on his face. I mean, that's pretty creepy. You know, there's no arguing with those canines, those little fur missiles. They'll, they'll eat you up. Oh, yes. And to, to not have any kind of sense of fear or sense of, you know, impending doom uh, when you're when you're charging a police officer and his canine, that that's probably not showing really good judgment. No, not at all. He definitely has a lack of judgment and just very, it just seems very unstable with all the choices that he's making. Yeah. So that goes on into the night. They finally are able to arrest him. On July the 6th, he was charged with the murder of his father, Dalton Gilmer. So what they discover is that the detectives found, when they found Dalton, his father, he was strangled to death. And they could tell that whoever strangled him used a rope. There were two distinct rope marks around his neck. So it sort of seemed as though whoever did it had to do it twice because there were two different marks. There was no wallet or any form of identification on him. And the only reason that they even knew that it was him was because his clothes that he had on were the clothes that he had on from the facility and they stamped his name into the inside of the clothes because they didn't, you know, to get him, not get him lost in the laundry. So they were able to identify him from that. But the worst part of that, I don't even know if this is the worst part or whatever. It's just so horrible. It's all terrible. It's pretty bad. But all 10 of his fingers were cut off with pristine precision. Medical precision. Medical precision. That's an excellent way to put it. Uh, Kira says, like a doc would make. (laughs) And a lot of sources say that he used a handsaw. Just so un, uh, uncaring and just callous and cold. And it's just, it does not at all marry up with the person that everyone described, you know, at the beginning of the story. Absolutely. Imagine that that sweet, nice doctor that you all love suddenly oh decides to kill his father. I mean, that, oh. Or a loved one. It's, it's, it's crazy to think about. Uh, when I'm reading the story, I was like, holy smokes, what in the world? What in the world was he thinking? You know, he obviously doesn't want, he doesn't want the body to be identified, but then he just left the body on the side of the road, didn't really try to hide it. It's just almost like there was part of him that kind of knew what he was doing, but then there was this other part of him that didn't have the ability to make clear decisions. Yeah. It's very disorganized was the Mm -hmm. the word that that came to mind when I, when I read this, I was like, holy cow, this is. This guy doesn't make any sense. Yes, that's a very good way of describing it. Very disorganized. So they never found the fingers. They, they're they not sure, you know, what happened to him. But Dr. Gilmer ended up writing a letter to a n- local newspaper. And he actually confessed to the crime. And he said, I, Vince Gilmer, committed manslaughter on June 29, 2004. It did not happen in Virginia. The only thing that happened in Virginia was the body ended up there. I'm confessing it happened in Elizabethton, Tennessee. So I don't know why he felt like he needed to do this other than there had to be something about the incarceration 
in Virginia that he didn't like, and that's why he wanted to be in Tennessee. I think one article I read said that he was... Virginia had the death penalty, and I'm not sure that Tennessee did, or or someone someone else in jail said that he he may get a more lenient mm-hmm. conviction. Interesting, Tennessee, Tennessee def- instead of yeah, instead of- that really surprises me. Tennessee definitely has a death penalty. Um, okay, I know they I know we have a death penalty, but I don't know if maybe they throw the switch a little faster in Virginia. I'm not yeah. sure because it definitely sometimes will take 20 years before a convicted criminal that is uh, given a death sentence is actually carried out. Yeah. It takes like 20 years in Tennessee. Anyway, so for whatever reason, he decided to confess, but try to somehow get get everything moved to Tennessee. I don't think that it was, he was successful. One source says that when he picked up his father, it was the day after he stopped taking Lexapro. And actually, I think he's the one that says that he said, that I thought I could do without it, didn't need it. And so that's what caused this. He says that stopping, he stopped the Lexapro and that lack of serotonin when he stopped taking it abruptly. He, uh, he said it, he was in the car. His father was bringing up the past. He claims that his father sexually abused him and his sister. And when his father was bringing it up, he became enraged uh, and then they stopped to get gas, went to Arby's, and the whole time, he says, his anger was building up. He was hearing voices in his head telling him to hurt or kill his father. And, you know, the thing is, I'm not saying that Lexapro can't have adverse effects. Of course, any medication can. And it is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor medication for sure. It's it's hard for me to just knowing the number of people that are taking this medication it's hard for me to equate just an abrupt, you know, abruptly stopping to take, you know, and taking it with all of this behavior. One of the things they always, you know, they always tell you with, with SSRIs, which is what, what this was, um, is to not stop them abruptly because, boy, you can have just a, a flip of the switch kind of worsening of your symptoms. It is true. But uh, I don't know, it'd be to this degree. Certainly, you know, certainly not something I've heard of a whole lot. So. Yes, it's definitely... It's definitely true. You absolutely are not supposed to stop taking them cold turkey. You're not supposed to stop taking them or wean off of them without the advice of your provider. Mm-hmm. There's, it's a, there's, these are very serious medications. They are altering the levels of chemicals in your brain. So, of course, you know one of the side effects or adverse effects of SSRIs is it could be suicidal ideation especially in teenagers. I'll just add that in there. But um, that doesn't mean that if you take, I mean, of course, the the point of them is to kind of help level off uh, the serotonin so that you feel better. And, but sometimes they don't work the way they're supposed to, or people don't take them the way they're supposed to, or they drink alcohol and take them. always the issue. Yeah. All sorts of things that can happen. And he knows this. He's a physician. And what's interesting was there were, they never found any evidence that he actually had a prescription that was filled in any pharmacy that they could tell mm-hmm. uh, that that put him on an SSRI. Uh, so he, you, you have to think that maybe he was self-medicating. Maybe he got it somewhere else. Maybe he was taking samples. It's hard to yeah. say. But he didn't have a easily traceable prescription for an SSRI. No, he didn't. So I think it's probably very likely that he was self-medicating. He probably self-diagnosed him. 
he's a very intelligent doctor. He can he knows the symptoms. It's very dangerous to do this, and no one should do this, but I'm sure he probably did recognize his own symptoms and maybe did start self-medicating with samples. It would be very easy to do. And so who knows? I'm, I'm sure he was probably having some sort of symptoms. And speaking of self-medicating, you, you have to wonder if that's what the sudden uh, uptake in, in alcohol consumption and you know, becoming a heavy drinker, if that yeah. had something to do with a self-medication of some sort as well. True. Because um, that, that definitely you know, is. That said that there, there were one article said that there was definitely an uptick in him drinking and him going to a bar, which hadn't been his his uh, way previously. That's very true. You really make a great point there. And we try to talk about mental health issues on this podcast uh, every now and then to try to bring awareness to it, bring it into the light. It's not anything to be ashamed of. Of course, I take an antidepressant. It's This is something that if you have something, if you have some chemicals that are off, you need to take a medicine, just like if you have a problem with your pancreas and you need, you know, a little insulin to help you out with that. It's no different. And there is in in no way what I try to say that his behavior was because of his mental, you know, illness, you know. So already we've had lots of really strange things happening in the story, but it, we haven't even gotten to the weird part. And that's what's. And then it gets weirder. It really gets weirder. It's just bizarre. It makes no sense. I don't even know how to explain it. No one knows how to explain this, but it happened. A new doctor. So they have the the practice that he opened, the King Creek Family Health Center. They needed a new doctor to replace that Dr. Gilmer that's now in prison awaiting trial for the, um, the death of his father. So they hire a new doctor. And this doctor's name is Benjamin None other than Gilmer, Dr. Benjamin Gilmer. They hire a Dr. Gilmer to replace Dr. Gilmer. What are the odds? I mean, it's not like his name was Smith or Jones or Johnson or Williams or something just so common. Yeah. Gilmer. I I don't even know if I know anyone with the name, last name Gilmer. How does this happen? And, and, and can you imagine the poor patient that got scheduled to see Dr. Gilmer after they Probably knew he was in jail. That's what happened. Wait, hold on. <laughs> he, the people people were calling. You know they they had been going to this this health you know this uh, clinic for for years, and so they knew that a new doctor uh, was replacing him. And so they called to make an appointment, and they're they're like, okay, we'll get you in with Dr. Gilmer. And the patients are like, uh, wait, what? Is this a joke? One of them said, <laughs> one of them said, I, I asked, is this some kind of Halloween joke? And there's there's a, a, a an entire NPR podcast, uh, This American Life, uh, Sarah Koenig does about this whole story, like an entire podcast, not one episode, the whole podcast. Very fascinating. Lots of interviews with the local people, but it's so funny because the person, you know, the the neat kind of person who who comes in and does a little, you know, the little narration. He says, "I've never even heard of an, a Halloween joke, <laughs> like you know, like Halloween yeah. prank or a Halloween." Uh, what was, uh, what did he call it? Like some kind of Halloween joke. Yeah. Yeah. And so, no, it's not a joke. It's, it's, it really happened. This is Dr. Gilmer. He does not know Dr. Vince Gilmer. They are not related in any yeah, way. No relation, no relation at all. What Completely. are the odds? What yeah. are the odds? It's just crazy. Well, what happened is this, this Dr. Gilmer starts 
seeing patients and the patients come in and guess what? They're talking about the other Dr. Gilmer. You know, they're not going to just come in, be seen by probably any doctor and not mention it, but definitely not another doctor called Dr. Gilmer and not mention it. Right. So they, yeah. yeah the, the last time they, you know, they're, they're thinking the last time I was here, I seen the guy that killed his dad. Yes. So oh. he, he start he, he starts seeing these patients and they're like, oh my goodness, the first Dr. Gilmer that you replaced, he was wonderful. He was this, he was that. They, they're telling him how amazing this person is. I think that he probably wouldn't have been surprised to hear that the other Dr. Gilmer was very strange or that he was rude or aloof or just they they got the creeps when they were around him. But that's not what he was hearing. And it was really off-putting. It bothered him a lot. Yeah. It bothered him so much that he decided to contact Dr. Gilmer in prison. I'm not sure that'd be the move I'd take. <laughs> I, I know I wouldn't. I would not want to be on this guy's radar at yeah. all. Because what if he does get out? I mean, you know, right? stranger things have yeah. happened. Yeah. I mean, you're like, hey, you're Dr. Gilmer. Me too. How do you, how's that conversation go? I know. I mean, I just, you got to wonder. He, he, he contacts him. They start ta- having phone conversations. Doctor, Doctor Ben Gilmer said that Doctor Vince Gilmer's uh, speech was slurred. He had a difficult time articulating his thoughts. He sent him a letter that apparently was absolutely all over the place, just with random thoughts, and he could sort of glean from it what he was trying to say. And basically, it was. I need a serotonin reuptake inhibitor type drug. I need Celexa. I need Lexapro. I need something like this. And they will not give it to me. And this is, it's causing all these problems. He was blaming his lack of serotonin on everything. The murder included. Like that, yes. everything, everything had to do with him, you know, not getting this med he needed uh, and him talking about his brain not working. Mm-hmm. When Dr. Ben went to, Visit him in prison, which again, crazy. I, I don't yeah. think I would have done that. Mm-mm. No, probably not. He said that he looked very ill. He was gray. He walked with a shuffle. He had very um, sort of uncontrolled, jerky movements. I think of some, you know, patients with Parkinson's disease that have those sort of, and when I think of like slurred speech and the shuffling and all that, I think of like tardive dyskinesia and the the some of the, the adverse effects of some some psych meds. That was I, that was my first thought too. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, he's not taking them because yeah. the prison medical facility or whoever is overseeing his medical care, they're not prescribing him anything. So those symptoms that Dr. Ben is describing that Dr. Vince has, to me... I mean, am I wrong? I don't know. Uh, uh, psych nurses, please help. I don't know. But aren't they associated with taking too much, too, like polypharmacy, taking too many psych meds? Like they get so much of that in their system and it starts causing these. Much more likely to be the case probably. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't understand that when I was reading this. That's, and you know, Dr. Ben, he seems like a good guy. You know, he seems like somebody really genuinely wants to help. He He's hearing about this doctor, maybe even some self-reflection, maybe thinking, man, if this could happen to this guy, it could maybe happen to me. What's going yeah. on? 
and wanting yeah. to kind of just investigate. So I don't think that he is being dishonest about what he's seeing. I think he's really seeing this. The problem is Dr. Vince, the symptoms that Dr. Ben is seeing, they actually kind of wax and wane depending on who is around and who's watching. And that's the thing. The pr- there is some prison video that shows him in the courtyard with none of those symptoms actually visible. Seems fine. Then, you know, mm-hmm. when the, the prison guards are looking, then suddenly he's got the you know, the shakes. Suddenly he's got the uncontrolled movements and mm-hmm. starts looking. If you've ever seen somebody do this in the hospital, you, you're familiar with this. Somebody who maybe plays it up just a little extra. Yeah. Because uh, you're there, there for your benefit. Yes, exactly. And I never like to, you know, judge people based on the reaction to things. And a lot of these true crime stories, you know, people will say things like they just didn't act right. They didn't, they, yeah. they acted like they were guilty or they acted like they didn't care. They, yeah, they, they didn't mourn correctly. You know, I feel like none of us really know how we're going to react. And I also think that sometimes in these cases, there is, no, there's no way you can react that would be, quote, appropriate, because if yeah. you overdo it, they're going to say you're faking it. And if you underdo it, they're going to say you're not sad enough, so yeah. you must be guilty. And so you've got to find some sweet spot in the middle there. And really, if you really are innocent, you're probably not thinking about that at all, yeah. you know? So, but having said that, for him to be having symptoms when— there are people around, like the doctor who replaced you, who's coming to kind of see what's going on. Seemingly intentional, seemingly not authentic. Yeah. yeah. So, Vince, Dr. Vince, there's okay. So another detail to consider here. He claimed that he killed his father in a fit of rage. Remember that? So, the thing is, when he picked him up from the nursing home, he did intend to take him to a different home. That's a little bit odd. Okay, he goes and picks him up from this nursing home. He's going to take him to a different home. Timing seems convenient. It does. There's also a little detail that he had the rope and a saw conveniently with him in his car. I don't think there's a rope and saw in my car, but uh, but I'll check. I mean, you know, all of these things could be coincidental, but it's it sort of also screams premeditated Absolutely. and, you know, think, planning it out. He had his, before he... Before all of this happened, he had his one of his assistants at the office book a flight to Alaska for him. So, you know, was he planning on doing something like this? Another uh, detail to note is that he was hundreds of thousands of dollars behind in payments to that nursing home facility that his father lived, where his father lived. And so... He had money available, apparently, from his father to pay that. Was he just not paying it? Was he just kind of like in his mind, mentally not able to take care of that? Was he doing something else with the money? Who knows? But that's another thing to consider. Money is a lot of times, you know, a motive and things like, you know, in these true crime stories. Absolutely. Well, the jury found him guilty of first-degree murder. And the judge sentenced him to life without the possibility of parole. And Ben Ben Gilmer actually became his doctor and tried to treat his mental illness. He even tried to have uh, tried to petition to get him out of prison. And 
in 2013, This American Life did release a podcast called Dr. Gilmer and Mr. Hyde, and it definitely caused a stir in the community there. Uh, because of the spin that was sort of put on that and, you know, listening, I feel like a lot of these stories, you could take them and you could spin them completely in one direction and have everyone listening going, oh my goodness, this is terrible. He's really sick. He's, and you could do that. Or you could spin them a completely different ways, a way and people would be like, well, he's totally faking. What a monster. Is- what a mm-hmm. monster. Yeah. Now you yeah. left out the big twist. Okay. Let's hear it. You left out the big twist is that one of the things that they found mm-hmm. was that when the the unincarcerated Dr. Gilmer was there with there to evaluate and talk to the incarcerated Dr. Gilmer, he brought along a friend who is a neurologist and kind of a psychi- or psychiatrist or neurologist, I don't remember which. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of evaluating him and so what the, that person said, you know, I wonder if he's got Huntington's disease. Mm. Now, if you know anything about Huntington's disease, it's a terrible, terrible disease. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible degenerative disease that affects your cognition, your function, your everything. And it, it's, it, it's a death sentence. Huntington's disease is a disease that I have heard described. If, in fact, if you go and look look it up. It is like a combination of Alzheimer's and ALS and Parkinson's all in one horrible disease. Bad, bad, and bad all wrapped in one. Yeah. It affects their movement. It affects their cognition. They they become cognitively un, you know, non-functional um, and, so, and makes them seem psychiatric, you know, like they, they definitely have a psychi- psychiatric disorder. Yeah. This is, this is an, an all-in-one badness that you would not want. This doctor said, hmm, I wonder if that's it. The good news about Huntington's is there's a way to test for it. Oh, yes. You can absolutely test for it. There is a test. It's definitive whether you have it or not. You can even test for it before you even have symptoms. So if you have, because it is hereditary. That's what I was just going to say is it, Mm -hmm. it it runs in the family. Um, It runs in the family for sure. So if you know, you have a family member that suffered from it and you want to know, the thing is, there is no cure for it. And there's not, there really isn't even a way to manage a lot of the symptoms. Unfortunately, it's a terrible disease. I mean, you take ALS and just that by itself, and I have seen ALS patients and taking care of, of them at the hospital, and it is the most heartbreaking, gut-wrenching, just absolute, it's horrible. I can't even, there are no words to describe the, the way that it, you feel when you have to see a family completely broken because of a disease like that. That's one aspect of Huntington's. If you if you ever um, if you remember hearing about the um, the singer Arlo Guthrie, his family all had Huntington's disease. Oh gosh, no! And and it was something that he he watched his his father deteriorate from it, and his kids watched him deteriorate from it, and they they know that they're they're heading down the same path. Um, it is absolutely genetic. You can mm-hmm. test for it, but you can find out you know in your twenties that you you are likely to have. Huntington's and and know that that's what you have to look forward in late in life. And holy cow, can you imagine? No, I really can't. I don't know that I would want to know, honestly. I don't know if 
if I knew yeah, that it was a possibility, know. it's really, it would be hard because just kind of knowing that that's out there somewhere in your future would, would be really difficult to, I mean, we all kind of know that at some point, ultimately, you know, best case scenario, a hundred years. So we all know there's an end somewhere, but to know. No one's getting out alive. Yeah. But to know that it's just so awful. Bad it's going to be. Yeah. Well, that was our bad doctor story. And it was a doozy of a story for sure. As far as I can tell, he's still in prison. They raised some money for his defense fund. I guess it kind of, you know, they all got all excited about it when that podcast came out. But I think it's all pretty much died down now. Now, now here's the thing that that really struck me about this case. And you tell me your your opinion, Tina. Do you think, because I, I, I have a hard time believing that even if he does have Huntington's, I think that might be an incidental finding. Like, I don't think that is what caused the the psychotic break. Like, it seems, it seemed a little too premeditated to actually be, I mean, and, and there's parts of it, there's parts of the story that seem very premeditated and very intentional and very well, you know, like he, like he really thought things through. And then there's other things that like, he just left the body on the side of the road. Like, clearly like not thinking clearly very disorganized all mm-hmm. the way through um but some parts of this were were really well thought out and some parts weren't and i don't remember seeing in any of the articles or, or on the podcast them talking much about the evidence and i don't i don't know that they had a whole lot of evidence he ultimately confessed he ultimately said he did indeed do it and and talked about what he did and how he did it um but it like I, I just wonder. It's not typical behavior for someone with Huntington's. I mean, certainly someone with Huntington's can get very, very ill. They look very disorganized, and it makes you wonder. One of the things that struck me in the story is his father was. I think that one report said he was. His father was around sixty years old. He's sixty years old and living in a nursing home and a total care patient in a nursing home. Mm. How how often do you see that? Right. Like, like I, I worked with sixty-year-olds. Yeah. So what was going on? <laughs> yeah. So what was going on? And and I think they'd said he was diagnosed with maybe schizophrenia or something. And and you have to wonder, you know, could could he have very well been diagnosed with with Huntington's and that just be completely missed? Well, you know, he was completely incapacitated and unable yeah. to take care for himself, mm-hmm. even having you know schizophrenia or yeah. any other kind of psych issue like that would not cause you to be physically incapacitated. So definitely what, you know, what was going on with him? That's a yeah. good question. That, that really is what struck me about the story is, is, you know, what, is that what was, you know, causing the debilitation of his father? Mm-hmm. But it, there's just too much that seems planned to really make me think that he was as disorganized as he would have to have been to truly be at you know, his wits end with this, with this disease. And that. But I don't know. I'm certainly not a psychiatrist. Uh, me either. Me either. What, a, what an interesting <laughs> story though. Yes, it is a very interesting and fascinating story. Disturbing for sure. And sad, just really sad. Even, you know, no matter how, no matter what the cause or what the circumstances were, we will, we'll, we'll never know whether he did have some sort of break and caught that caused all of these things. But either way, it's just horribly sad. 
That's terrible. Terrible, terrible story. Holy cow. Well, fortunately, so I always do this because I get so depressed and down after the, the bad story. I'm always it's sitting here just one. like, this is awful. <laughs> and then I have the a difficult time kind of segueing into the next. But the good thing is like, ending on a good note is so ending nice. Ending on a good note. It, it really is. It's one of those like, whew, that was heavy. Let's take that pack off and talk about something a little lighter. <laughs> yeah. And the, the thing about this story is, honestly, it's a little... It was a little difficult for me to stomach, to be just perfectly honest with you. And I, I have a pretty, I have a pretty it, strong stomach, but this, mm. it's a good story, but it's a gross story. It's very gross. But I'm so thankful for this, this surgeon. This is a vas- about a vascular surgeon, he uh, from China. Um, his name is Zhang Hong. And I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Probably not, because usually those names are pronounced so differently, but we'll go with that. And he was a surgeon. He is a surgeon from the first affiliated hospital in Jinan University. I'm not going to try to say these words. It's ridiculous. But he was on an airplane, and there was a man who was 70 years old who was complaining of abdominal pain. And this surgeon goes and assesses him and says, oh, he, it looks, you know, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, he's pressing on his his abdomen and, and the lower part and going, oh, that's very distended. I And I imagine it was probably very firm. And he it was, he was probably thinking, oh dear, something is not right. So he, he apparently was having some urinary retention and the, the, surgeon was afraid that his bladder was going to rupture and this man was going to die right there on the plane. And it's not like you just keep a Foley catheter, you know, just anywhere. They can't keep just any emergency kit, you know, and who would think a Foley would be something that would be an emergent thing on an airplane. So he had to make one. So then he makes like a makeshift sort of catheter, tries to insert it. There's an obstruction. So he can't, he cannot insert it. So, Kevin, <laughs> what did he do? <laughs> I can't doc- even say it. I'm sorry. It's just so uh, bad. All right. I can. I can. So, this doctor really kind of took one for the team. He did, yes. find, he did find something. And it, doesn't, it doesn't specify what. He did find something that he was then able to access the urethra with. And get it past the prostate, which is probably always a challenge. It's a challenge with a good Foley, let alone a, you know, cocktail straw. (laughs) Who who knows what this this actually was? I think they said it was uh, something rigged between a straw and a um, oxygen tubing. But he he found some tube to go ahead and put a a Foley catheter in this gentleman uh, to try to deflate his abdomen. Now. If if you've ever put in a Foley catheter in somebody who has prostate problems, you know that that's a difficult task to do. Imagine doing it with makeshift, you know, uh, materials. Anyways, the good doctor goes ahead and he gets that that catheter in and tries to then void this guy's, try to empty this guy's bladder. Well, it didn't go as hoped. It didn't uh, empty the the way he'd hoped it would. So this good doctor who boy, he's a, he's a better man than me, decided that what probably helped would be a little bit of suction. And, oh. <laughs> and oh. 
not finding an easy way to provide said suction to said catheter. He provided the suction in a way, a very natural way that he thought would work. And it did. And as you can imagine, there's video of this doctor. Of course. And of course. Day and age. Mm-hmm. And somebody's got it on video. There's video of this doctor taking his mouth and sucking on this makeshift straw yes. to evacuate urine from this gentleman's bladder, the stranger's bladder. How okay? long? How long did he do this, Kevin? He did this for a re- he did this for 800 cc's that oh, he got goodness. out of this guy's bladder over, uh, I, I don't remember how long it was. It was 37 a long, minutes. Long time, a long time oh. to be sipping uh, the straw of, oh, of sorry, that's that didn't, no, need it's, go, didn't need to go there. Uh, but it's sipping, true. Sipping a straw. It's so and weird. Em- emptying this gentleman's bladder. Now, you know, did he did he save this guy's life? He very well may have. This guy did have a very distended bladder. The yeah. uh, the news article says that they were about six hours from their final destination. Mm. Um, and you know, there weren't many options up there. Now, now I don't know if you I don't know if you know this, Tina, but but airplanes carry very extensive emergency medical kits. They, they carry very extensive. They have stuff. If you're a doctor or you're a nurse, they have lots of toys in there. They have toys. They have drugs. They have everything you would need for a lot of life-threatening medical emergencies. A lot of them carry AEDs. A lot of them carry medications, um, including, you know, first-line cardiac medications. They carry stuff. They have stuff in there. Um, what they don't have in there is that I've been able to find is a Foley catheter. Maybe they need to start... <laughs> Maybe just put one in there just in case. You don't have to have um, the bag, just the tube. Just something. We can, yeah. we, can, we can get it in something. So this video shows this doc taking, taking sips of urine and spitting him into a, an empty champagne bottle. For 800 um, milliliters? For 800 milliliters. That is a mouthful, my friend. Uh, and <laughs> Sorry, that's really inappropriate. <laughs> it is. It's awful. <laughs> it's the it's ER, just it's the, unbelievable. It's the, it's the ER nurse in me. We have terrible sense of humor. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but sure enough, he, he does this and, and it makes a difference in this guy. And, and you know, he ended up making it to the to their final destination. And he's sure doing did. Okay. But boy, talk about earning some frequent flyer miles. Holy <sighs> smokes. I hope Can you, you did. imagine. Yeah. Now, now here's here's the question that I had is is would it have drained anyway? Would it have drained eventually? Because I, I can't help but think that it would have. I was c- kind of wondering about a couple of things. First of all, I was wondering, did he have to do 800? No. The answer no. to that is no. No. Nobody needs 800. Uh, okay. I, I, that's that's just me saying no. But I, I wouldn't think so. Like I would you, think you, that even if he got out a couple you got, hundred. You got a couple hundred out. You're like, hey, you know what? You're going to be good for a little while. Yeah. Give him a Let's, little... I mean, six hours, another six hours. Yeah, that is uh, a long time. But talk about going for the gusto. Holy cow. 800 milliliters. He really relieved the pressure and the pain that that guy was going through. And he did that, obviously, just completely sacrificed himself. It's just amazing. I can't even imagine the selflessness of this man. Forever, he's going to be that doctor. Yes. He's going to be that doctor that did that. (laughs) (laughs) It's so incredibly selfless. I cannot, you know, of all the things that someone can do and that medical 
professionals do. We talk about them every every week on this podcast, all the amazing things that people do. It's awesome. I'm just always so proud of my co, you know, my colleagues and of the things that people do. But this guy to do this, I cannot even I it's hard for me to imagine. It's I my brain doesn't even want to go there, but it, it, even if I could imagine that, I I always see myself honestly passing out. I just don't even know if I could do it. It's that's awful. I feel terrible yeah. saying that. I don't yeah, want to be that person, but I just can't even imagine myself doing this. Now, Tina, have you ever been on a flight where they've called for medical help? No. So this happened to me just recently. Oh no! What this happened? happened to me. It ended up there ended up being plenty of people that responded. Thank, thank the Lord. Um, <laughs> but sure enough, they you know you hear the little ding ding ding. They're like, is there anybody with medical experience on oh, the plane? And I'm sitting there going. Nope, sure isn't. <laughs> did everybody kind of sit there for like half a second? <laughs> I, I don't know if everybody did, but I certainly did. <laughs> so then I, I, I finally like kind of look around. I'm like, all right, I don't see anybody getting up. So uh, I see a gentleman get up and starts walking to the back. So I can kind of stand up and I'm like, okay, let's go see what's going on. And it was a woman who just you know, had like, I think probably a little bit of anxiety. I actually never really get a chance to lay eyes on her because there was already like three people responding to her by the time I got there. And this gentleman goes, well, I'm a doctor. Are you? And I'm like, no, I'm a nurse. And he's like, I go, but I'm an ER nurse. And he's like, oh, okay. That, that Okay. Here, why don't you, here, here you go. And I was like, yeah. okay, we're, let's just go see what's going on. So by the time we got there, there was already a couple people kind of attending to her and she was doing okay. And she, she was fine. And she was, she walked off the plane and like fine by the time she got in. Of course I didn't see her. But but I did answer the call. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and say who who I am. And but they they'll they'll ask you and they'll ask you for your credentials and they'll ask for some kind of proof of your credentials. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have a card that says I'm a nurse anywhere. But uh, I actually do. The state of Tennessee issue when they issue your license, they issue you a little business little card, card. size. Nice. Yes, it's it looks exactly like your license and I just keep it in my purse. I, you know, they used to do that when I first got my nursing license in in New Mexico. They they give you a little plastic card that says you are card carrying RN, but then they <laughs> they they quickly stopped doing that and I haven't had anything since. Hmm. But, uh, but yeah, they, they'll ask you about your credentials and if you have legit credentials, they will get into this what's called the EMK, the emergency medical kit. And there's stuff in there. There's, you know, there's medications, there's supplies, there's, you can start an IV, you can give first line cardiac meds and, and you can, you know, probably do a 12 lead EKG yeah. or at least a, you know, a, a two lead EKG. So it's kind of interesting how much stuff they have on there, but I, I guess they have to. So, but boy, this doc, he went above and beyond. I, I got to tell you, I, I would have waited a really long time to see if the Foley was going to work before I started. Kira suggested that that he should have asked his wife to do it. Like, hey, you can handle this. You don't need a medical professional to do this part. Here's the piece you're gonna do. Yeah. (laughs) And and it's it's still it's still just as gross. I mean, you know, it's still just as gross. (laughs) Yeah, there's no way. I mean, you just gotta you know wonder if the wife would have been like, honey, he just said you're gonna die. (laughs) I was I was thinking the exact same thing. I'd be like, sir, I'm afraid things aren't gonna go well for you. Yeah. Well, I always, you know, I joke. I, of course, I make everything into a joke. I, 
and uh, sometimes I think people think, oh my goodness, you're a terrible person because I'm joking around about something. And in reality, I know that if something like that was going on, I would do everything in my power to help someone, of course. Maybe not everything, but <laughs> but I do a lot. Maybe not. Everything. I honestly don't know that it would have ever <laughs> occurred to me to do that. No, I, I don't think it would have. I don't think it would have occurred to me either. Like I... I don't think I would have thought of MacGyvering a uh, fully catheter out of supplies. Like, yeah. Even if I did think, you know, we have to figure out a way to drain this bladder and could somehow come up with some makeshift thing. I don't think I would attempt to do that, honestly, myself. But even if I had, you know, done something like that, it would never have occurred to me that to create section to try no. to, you know. Uh, I'd been like, if, if gravity doesn't get it, it ain't coming out. It's not going to come out. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just have to wait. Yeah. Well, but but luckily the, the, the patient turned out okay. He's doing okay. Yes. And this guy is forever going to be labeled that doctor. He's going to um, be that and, doctor. And, and, you know, God bless him. I remember hearing about this uh, a long, uh, when it happened. And I remember thinking, I have so many questions. Like, mm-hmm. what, what did you do? And, and then and you, there's video. So, yep, sure is. <laughs> I don't recommend going and watching it, but if you choose to, well, you know, whatever. So. Well, you guys, be sure and check out Kevin's podcast, The Art of Emergency Nursing. Thank you, Kevin, so much for coming on to Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Tina, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me uh, be on your podcast and have fun talking to your audience. Yeah. Where can they find you other uh, than your find podcast? Me on Instagram. Obviously. My podcast, of course, uh, and you, I'm also on Instagram at uh, Art of Emergency Nursing. You can you can find me there. I post there pretty frequently. Wonderful. And you guys know you can find us at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse Podcast on Instagram and GNBN Podcast on Facebook. And you know, I always want you to reach out to us and send us your story ideas. I love getting to, to um, interact with you guys on social media and love to hear your feedback and especially when it's positive. <laughs> Yeah, you know, every now and then I get I do get that negative one, and it's okay. I want to hear from you too. I promise. Just don't stop listening. You know, if I say something every now and then, I know how I am. I know I laugh at stuff that's probably not really appropriate to laugh at, and make jokes when I shouldn't. And people sometimes slap my hand for it, and it's okay. Oh. I oh, deserve you're, it. You're oh no, you're way sweeter than I would be. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I remember the episodes I've listened to. I'm like, oh my gosh, this woman is like the nicest nurse I've ever met in my life. Oh. So you, you you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that so much. Well, I really, I love my listeners. You guys, be sure and check us out next week. We'll have another episode for you. And I always also want you to remember that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Mm-hmm.